Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 372nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. I have said it many times, I am a lifelong learner, and I'm excited to let you know about a unique global online event made just for those of us who want to grow our own food. In this four-day online learning opportunity, a collection of visionary growers, gardeners, permaculturists, and homesteaders share garden hacks, slow tools, gadgets, and gardening technologies. Join tens of thousands of budding growers and learn how to save time, energy, and money while doing what you love most, growing your own food and medicine. Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash garden hacked to register for this free online summit. Today on our podcast, we have someone who has simple, cost-effective solutions for conserving rain and water flow resources. We're talking with Brooke Sarson about water harvesting. Brooke is co-owner and CEO of Catching H2O and H2Ohm. Gotta love that. She started H2Ohm in 2008 with the mission to be the resource to the San Diego community for water harvesting. She was determined to create change from the ground up by showing homeowners, educators, and policymakers how simple and effective rainwater harvesting and graywater recycling can be. Her continued mantra has been that individual contributions create tremendous impact toward a larger water conservation strategy. Since H2Ohm's inception, Brooke has directly installed or facilitated hundreds of thousands of gallons of water conservation between rainwater tanks, graywater systems, and landscape design changes. Her engineering background perfectly complements the permaculture design framework she uses to approach design problems. Welcome to the show today, Brooke. Are you ready to rock water harvesting? You bet. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. Thanks, Greg. Back in 2008, I was getting ready to go back into the workforce and I really wanted to do something that mattered. I had two small children and I wanted them to have a better future. 
And I really was attracted to water and we were having a serious drought in San Diego. And I started researching and learning more about water in the West and what different kinds of things were being done and not being done. And I traveled to Australia and Arizona. So I've seen rainwater harvesting and gray water harvesting and really understood how simple it is and how communities could have an ethic for water harvesting and water conservation. And I just couldn't understand why San Diego wasn't talking about it in that way. And I decided to just get started and try it and share it with my community and learn everything I could so I could help other people do these things. Wow, cool. So you mentioned ethic. Tell me a little bit more about a water ethic. Yeah, the phrase came to me when I was at a water talk in San Diego, and the speaker specifically talked about Tucson and how they've been building for like 20 years or more, like all the nurseries, plant nurseries and stuff have been starting to stock more and more natives and like have this conversation. So now in Tucson, they actually have a local ethic of place, what is appropriate for this place. And, you know, there are the forerunners of water harvesting in kind of the West. So that really struck me. And just kind of thinking about how we don't have an ethic of place. We've got lawns, we've got like desert scapes. We've got a lot of things that are all transplants from everywhere that everybody's come from. And I thought, well, how can we build this ethic of place? What is appropriate for San Diego? And having rainwater tanks front and center in people's yards is one way that people can start to shift their ethic of what's okay, what's appropriate, what makes sense, and start to feel instead of like rainwater tanks are ugly, they don't belong in our landscapes, they're not useful, there's not enough rain, instead of that concept, if it's just an accepted reality that of course you would put a rainwater tank in, which is what I've seen in Australia, Right. then we start to shift this conversation from the basics to like beyond the basics. One, have it be cool to have a rainwater harvesting tank in your front yard. Exactly. Wow. So you've been doing a lot of work over the past 10 years on that. What has the community response been to this process in your business? When I first started, there was kind of this really unsurety of, you know, what are you talking about? What is rainwater harvesting? What's gray water harvesting? And I would invite people to my home and kind of see my system and describe it to them in detail. And nowadays it's like people are calling and responding all the time. And we just finished two big grant funded projects. One was in one watershed to restore trout to the region. And we did 20 homes, laundry to landscape installations. And the other one's 50 homes down in this other watershed that pollutes San Diego Harbor. And it's 50 homes in a low income neighborhood with rainwater tanks, gray water systems, and you know natives and edibles. Wow, that's epic. So when you talk about like how things shifted to get state funding for a project like that yeah. tells me things have really shifted. And now in that neighborhood, there's a whole different reality going on when people walk around and see all of this stuff. And that's going to keep shifting things more too. No kidding. Wow. That is truly epic. Good job. Thanks. How does that make you feel when you see a project like that come to fruition? 
Oh man, it's been so exciting, Greg. I can't even tell you. I mean, first of all, the homeowners are awesome and this neighborhood really just needed a facelift and it was never going to get one. And so I feel really good about that. We're seeing the yards, you know, nine month old, one year old yards with butterflies and hummingbirds that were pretty much wastelands before the kids are walking home through the neighborhood, seeing these things and getting comfortable with them. The people that work for me are all being gainfully employed in a good way, like doing things that they're passionate about. And that feels really good. Now I have something really cool to talk about to other people and hopefully get other projects like this moving. Oh my God. We could go on for hours because my mind is just exploding with questions about how this all happened. But how did you make this happen? Tell me about this story. Well, so this was a product of many people's hard work. Groundwork San Diego got the grant with help kind of designing the program with the San Diego Sustainable Living Institute. And once they got the grant, they had to put bids out for contractors. And there's really not anybody in San Diego doing what we're doing at the level we're doing it. Congratulations, by the way. That's great. Thanks. Back in 2017, I joined forces with Rosalind Hasselbeck, who's a licensed contractor and has been working at this field about the same amount of time as I have. So together, we're just so powerful. So we were able to get the contract and, you know, run a super tight ship. So a low budget, you know, maximizing it to create all these water efficiencies. Yeah. And it's just been a great partnership. We have like cool company we work with does the landscape designs you know we have like the local nursery that's kind of helping us out with you know amendment uh-huh. everybody's kind of like stepped up bushman has been giving us discounts on bulk tanks it's just been a really good partnership for everybody's been really on board with this project wow well congratulations that is really cool Thank you. So you mentioned one of the things that you've done is laundry to landscape system. For our listeners that don't know what that is, tell us what that is, please. Laundry to landscape is when you can direct your gray water from your washing machine out to your landscape. And in California, this is now written into the California Plumbing Code that you can install a laundry to landscape system with no permit required. And this system was designed by Art Ludwig who wrote Create Your Own Oasis with Gray Water. Uh And what it does is it capitalizes on the pump in the washing machine to pressurize the water. And so because you're not changing any of the plumbing of the house, you're just redirecting the laundry hose through a different pipe. There's no permit required. And actually in San Diego, what's really cool is the city of San Diego is now giving $250 rebates for this system. Really? Yeah. They're low cost. The cost of parts usually isn't more than $500. Uh-huh. The washing machine is usually located in a garage or near an outside wall. So getting the water outside is pretty simple. Yeah. So it's kind of a great low hanging fruit. We do workshops all the time to teach people how to do this themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's super empowering. Wow. Cool. So why is all of this so important? So when we look at some of the numbers, I have this engineering background. So I'm just trying to spin everything in a way that like makes sense. Like why bother? You know, why does it make sense? You know, when I did this project in the San Luis Rey watershed where we were doing these laundry to landscape systems, I thought, how do I make this relevant? Well, I figured out where's all the wastewater going for this area, you know, and it goes to this water treatment plant that treats like 9 million gallons of water a day. And then I figured out how many 
homes are in this treatment facility area uh-huh. and how much water would we redirect if all the gray water from the washing machine was just sent outside instead of to the wastewater treatment facility. And it was something like 1.5 or 1.9 million gallons of water would be redirected daily. Daily. And so the crazy thing is this water treatment facility, if I you know read everything correctly, uh-huh. actually expanded their site by that much water a few years ago to be able to cope with like new housing, new development, like whatever. So I'm like, well, if we could just detach every Everybody's washing machines like that's a pretty easy thing to do yeah we don't have to build bigger infrastructure and then i was you know just kind of playing with all the numbers for san diego for so long and at the rate that we use water and we mostly use it for outdoor irrigation and all of these things basically if we could reduce our outdoor irrigation needs and for all the single family homes in san diego by half then we could reduce our imported water needs by 25%. So, you know, I'm talking about what if we just give like a $1,000 rebate to all the homeowners to put in a rainwater tank, a gray water system. And on the other hand, we put in a desalination plant Yeah. that only supplies about 8% of San Diego's water needs. It costs like $650 million and it took 14 years to build. So we could have negated three of those just by reducing our outdoor water use by half. Like this is a simple solution. It's not a $650 million solution. Wow. And has the municipalities been open to that? Well, unfortunately, the solution I'm talking about doesn't put money in anybody's pocket, you know. Yeah. There's not really any incentive. There's nobody lobbying for this. That's why I personally feel empowered to just go from the ground up, talk to as many people as I can, yep. you know, get it out there in the neighborhoods and just invite the people to make the change. Excellent. Well, and you're very passionate about it as well. So that is apparent. So good job. Thank you. So what's unique about your business besides the fact that you're the only one doing it in San Diego County? Yeah. Well, I mean, we might not be the only ones doing it, but I would say what's unique about us is this is what we do. We're not a landscaping company that also puts in rainwater tanks. We're not a gutter company that also puts in rainwater tanks. We're not only putting in, you know, off the shelf gray water systems, something that you can just plug and play. Every home is crying out for a different setup. And we really focus on an integrated design. So we're not trying to do just one thing or the other thing or just give people a thingy to make them feel green or sustainable. We're really focusing on integrated strategies that help people save money and save water. And I think that's what makes us unique. And between Rosalind and I, we have such a broad range of specialty. I mean, Rosalind puts in large underground water storage. She designs advanced gray water systems that, you know, whole house gray water systems. I have a good eye for like simplicity and I can manage projects really well to keep them efficient. And together we're just like a really great team and we're focused on water conservation. And it doesn't mean that we're not paying attention to all the other things like landscape and stuff. We have great partners who we trust to do those things with us. And I think that's what makes us unique. 
Yeah, beautiful. Well, all of California is still in this huge drought, are you not? Well, it depends who you talk to. <laughs> right. Okay, good. I mean, with only like 20% of our water coming from local resources, I would say we're never water secure. Mm -hmm. But when I read these flyers that come from our water departments, it's a little bit depressing because this is what's distributed to all the homeowners. And it's like, oh, don't worry. There's no problem with drought. We have this reservoir full of water and we're building this new thing, great infrastructure thing. And don't worry, we've got all your water needs covered. And it totally negates the ecological reality of where our water is coming from and what the strain on those ecologies and those reservoirs and those systems is. So I think for me, part of my job is really just educating people about all of that so that yeah. they don't get too comfortable with like, oh, now we've got the desal plant, like all of our needs are taken care of. It's like we're not out of a drought. You mentioned it earlier, doing the ground up work. I am a huge proponent. That's why I do the podcast. It's about all the work that I do is working from the ground up, trying to adjust and move the municipalities. It's like a huge ocean liner trying to get it to move. It seems quite impossible to me. Have you found that? That's exactly what I found very early on. Even my contacts in the water department that really were big proponents of all of this and really wanted this stuff. They had an uphill battle themselves against the bureaucracy. And I think I got a little burnt out of trying to do it that way mm -hmm. early on. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So there's other people doing good work and I just try to kind of stay a little connected and keep doing what I'm doing and talk to anybody who wants to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah. So I want you to think back over the past 10 years of water harvesting systems. And is there one instant, one moment, one something that happened that when it happened, it was like, yes, that is the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. I do feel like there's been several of those moments and they come a lot with workshops. When I get a group of people together and teach them how to do things and give them tools and materials and just kind of stand back and let them do their thing. I feel like I haven't just installed one system. I've given 20 people the information they need to go talk to all of their friends and maybe install their own system. I would say those moments, maybe standing with a group of people who just installed a laundry gray water system and watching a load of laundry water come out into the landscape that we just developed is my yes reason. Got it. So, you know, we talked about gray water a little while ago and what is the big issue with gray water? You may have touched on it a little bit and why do people have a problem with it? Gray water is wastewater from your washing machine and your shower and sometimes your bathroom sinks. It is not water from your kitchen sink. In California, that's technically black water, and it's definitely not water from your toilets. In California now, both shower water and laundry water are legal. In San Diego and probably other municipalities, a lot of the building codes are not really friendly towards gray water. So if you want to put in a system, getting a permit's kind of complicated, and the rules shift depending on which municipality you're in. And basically, they're handling it like wastewater. So, you know, there's a lot of fear about what this gross water 
and, you know, having it in your yard. Uh-huh. There's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, is soap good or bad for my plants? And I would say that one of the biggest complications with gray water is that a lot of our homes are built on slabs. And once you have a shower drain and a slab, you're not going to get it outside. And there's one place in San Diego County, Encinitas, that is requiring gray water step outs for new homes, which is really awesome. Yeah. That's the exception to the rule. And I can't believe we're still building new homes and not having, you know, gray water accessible plumbing. And most plumbers and builders, they don't understand how to do it simply. They all think, well, we'll just put this stub out here and then you can plug in your system. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be like that. And there's not a lot of incentive for them. It's not bringing in dollars like solar is. Solar is bringing in dollars. So there's more requirements about you know, solar retrofits and all of that kind of stuff. But it's a challenge and people want a thing. So they're looking and they're like, oh, I want to install this gray water system from this location. Right. And so many times it's like, well, we could have done it so simply if we just drain the water right outside to an area, if you're willing to shift your ideas about how landscaping is supposed to look and feel. So again, it's just that educational right. thing where we just need to start showing people how it can look and feel. And that just takes time. And nobody's at the building level or in the government level is going to take initiative about, you know, doing it right. Cause there's no money in it. Right. They have to spend more money in order to make that happen. Yep. So that's where the education that you and I do comes yep. from. That. Yeah. Perfect. So what kind of soaps do we put down the drain in a gray water system? Well, Soaps aren't always bad. They often have things like nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, which are fertilizing agents. But a lot of the soaps that we do use have a lot of sodium in them. Sodium softens things. It preserves the soap. It makes things suds up. And those are the things that we need for shelf-stable soaps that you know make us feel like they're actually getting things clean. But at least in San Diego, I don't know how it is, you know, where you're from in Phoenix, but the soil is very clay in most yep. of San Diego. And so all of those fine particles prevent the salts that are in the water from being able to move through the soil. And so they build up on the surface and basically prevent the roots of plants from being able to uptake moisture and nutrients. It's like dehydrating them the same as too much salt dehydrates us. So finding soaps that are lower in salt content, making sure the soaps are bio degradable soaps can be great there i mean most people find that you know their fruit trees are way more productive once they get gray water and you know their landscapes are much more lush but it's a matter of matching the type of water which is generally more alkaline water to the kind of plants that would thrive on that rather than other kinds of plants when you could actually do a hybrid system put a rainwater and a gray water system together so when the rain comes it kind of flushes out some of the solids or the salt the calcium, that kind of stuff that's in the water, can you not? You got it. Yeah. And that kind of thing can be done very simply by just if you create a place for the gray water to pool and soak in, that same place can take a rainwater downspout coming, you know, draining out into it. And just that once a year flush is usually good enough. And, you know, all of this is an educational process. So it's like, wow, once you start using gray water, you realize what an impact your choices make on your plants, not to mention what those same choices, what effect those have on your local waterways, you know? 
Right. When you're making those choices, you're starting to care a little bit more about what your soil's like, you know, plant health and stuff. And so you make sure there's mulch and you start to make better choices in your landscape rather than just kind of leaving it alone and expecting it to, you know, kind of be fine without any care. So that helps, you know, everybody starts paying attention a little bit more, which is really important. That's a big piece of it. It's really about where you're putting your concentration at about this. Yep. So one of the things that I've done here at the Urban Farm and when you visited eight or nine or 10 years ago, I had the gray water and the rainwater in place is that I moved some of the gray water systems outside so that I didn't have to deal with the plumbing inside. So that's another possibility, is it not? Most of the time, what we do is we put in a three-way valve in the plumbing, in line of the plumbing. So the plumbing can basically be redirected back to the sewer as usual without any issues. And then we take the line coming out of the three-way valve outside the house. And at this point, this is where we redirect the water. So all it is is a valve and pipes, generally. Sometimes we have to put in a sump basin, which would be outside also. So the outfall of the gray water system would go into a sump basin that then would be pumped into irrigation lines going out to the yard. But all of it's located outside. So when we design these systems, they kind of function without much need for any kind of daily maintenance or care. Did I hear you say that you're actually collecting gray water in tanks and then using it in irrigation systems? Well, I wouldn't call it collecting. It's a sump basin. And sometimes we have issues with the fall of the pipe. So the pipe can't naturally fall by gravity going out into the garden. And so we actually have to pump it out there. And so the way that works is first it, it kind of falls into the sump basin and then a pump will turn on as soon as the water starts to hit it and eject the water out to the landscape. And we don't use traditional irrigation lines with drip emitters because that would all get clogged. Exactly. Unless you're gonna put in like extremely intense filtering, which just costs too much money. Right. So we use a couple different designs. One is we have used Irrigray, which is kind of standard irrigation lines, but it's specially designed for gray water. So it has a little bit more ability to manage all the particulates. And then we also use like our, our laundry to landscape kind of flood irrigation design, which basically it points that it can flood out of Uh and we can adjust those so that it can flood more in one place and more in another, but it's not like drip emitters. It's just spreading the water out over a larger area because it's under pressure, but still having kind of basins or areas that can collect the pooling water that are filled with mulch. Right. So you got the mulch as a sponge and then you plant around those landscape basins. Exactly. It depends if it's a retrofit or a new design. If it's a retrofit, we might design the basins to be placed among existing plants like at their root lines Uh so the water just pools at their root lines yeah and if it's a new design we have opportunities to really design in the basins in ways where you can cluster the plants around so that you have the simplest way of moving the water out into the landscape wow you have done a lot with this haven't you over the years yeah 
Cool. Well, I'm really appreciative and proud of you for doing that. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. I would say that it took me many, many years to think of myself as a business person and not viewing myself as a business person. I kind of failed to have the right kinds of relationships with my clients where we were all encouraged to kind of show up as clients clients and business person. So it's hard to explain a lot about what that looks like. It's me undervaluing myself and people undervaluing this work and those kinds of things. And, you know, me having like a lot of emotion around certain things when it could have been a lot more cut and dry. As soon as I really started to own the fact that I was a business person, everything got really clear, all the lines got really clear, and it became a lot easier for me to have very good relationships with my clients about what the expectations are, how I show up, how they show up. And it just makes like a smoother kind of flow for projects. Right. Well, and a big, big piece of this is that when you shifted it, you shifted your value in your mind. Yes. And that I'm sure that was hugely impactful. Yeah. I mean, I started off just wanting to be a resource to my community and I felt like it was a gift to be able to give. And it still is. It's more powerful now that I can actually like basically support my family with this gift. I can support my employees with this gift. Mm -hmm. I have even more potential for legitimacy within government, you know, being able to run this grant project, I never could have done if we didn't have this contracting license, which is like a level of legitimacy you can really only have if you have like a business background to kind of support all of that, the infrastructure of, you know, insurance and all of these kinds of things. So there's more work that's possible with being able to frame all of this through a legitimate business rather than a gift. Wow. Congratulations. That's good work. Thanks. So what do you consider your biggest success? I mean, right now in this moment, I'm feeling like this project for 50 homes in the Choice Creek watershed is my personal biggest success. Just the quantity, like walking down these streets and seeing home after home, like reshaped, knowing the people in those homes feeling like I've run the numbers and like understanding how much water we've saved and redirected, knowing that that's going to directly impact the water quality going out into San Diego Harbor, knowing that this project can bigger itself because of what we've shown is possible. Uh -huh. All of that feels really, really powerful. And I would say maybe on a like slightly more personal note, maybe one of my other big successes is just being able to partner with my business partner, Rosalind. I think there's a lot of business energy that in America that is based on competition versus cooperation. And it took a lot of work for us to stay open to each other and form this cooperation for many, many years leading up to when we became business partners that it could have easily gone another way if we were in competition with each other. So I would say that that's been a really big success for us. Wow, that, that's cool. Because I've said for probably decades, 
decades that cooperation is where it's at. Competition is it's really using up the resources of the planet and beating each other up. And that doesn't work. Yeah, it's a hard thing to adopt. It's hard for people to change their ways. And there's definitely been other bumps in the road. But yeah, the times when we've been able to cooperate, when I've been able to cooperate and others have been willing to cooperate with me, I've just been really powerful experiences and powerful partnerships. And we've been able to get really amazing stuff done. Yeah, well, that's where we can change the world at. Absolutely. So what drives you? If I can just tell a little vignette. Please. When I was a kid growing up in LA, my neighbors had chickens and I didn't know anybody else in LA with chickens, but I was at their house like almost every day and that was just a part of life. I wasn't like weirded out by it. It wasn't like a crazy thing. And when I grew up and, and I had my own house and my own family, I thought, well, I want chickens. Like it wasn't weird to me, even though it was illegal in San Diego at that time for a homeowner to have chickens. You know, it didn't even occur to me that I wouldn't want to have chickens, you know, it's like fresh eggs and everything. So I think just growing up with that environment really made a difference for me and what was possible for me when I grew up. And knowing that I've put rainwater tanks in so many backyards, but also so many front yards, especially in this one neighborhood, I think about it. And there's like three different, two or three different schools in that area. And the kids all walk home from school. And like right across from their school are these like big rainwater tanks. And there's fruit trees and there's butterflies and hummingbirds and sage instead of like dead lawn. And I think these kids are going to grow up knowing that this is possible and that it's acceptable and that it's you know something they could think of when they grow up and instead of growing up to be the kind of people that I have to talk to that are like oh that's ugly or oh why would we do that or whatever they're going to grow up with a whole different reality of what's possible and what's acceptable and normal and that just makes it all worth it for me wow you're creating a new ethic around this yeah nice Nice. So I'm going to ask this question a little bit different. If you could recommend three books for our listeners, what would they be and why? Yeah, my three foundational books that I take to every class I teach and just really love are one from Brad Lancaster, and it's Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. And this is a great book if you want to really understand how water moves in the landscape. It's got the great, you know, eight principles of successful water harvesting. It's got great appendices and calculations and it goes into a lot of good detail about how to craft earthworks that will catch and store and soak in water. Also, one of my favorites is Art Ludwig's book, Create an Oasis with Gray Water. That's a great foundational book for using gray water, shower water, passive gravity, laundry to landscape, and he's updated it recently. So it's got a lot of good information from installers like us about what is actually working out in the field. So that's a really great one. I actually have an interesting story on that book. Okay. When I was in San Francisco, I'm going to say it was in 1990 or 1991, I was in this bookstore and I ran across this saddle stitch. So they stapled it in the middle and it was the precursor to that book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I actually still have that one on my shelf. Whoa, that's so cool. Yeah, I know, isn't it? Yeah. He's been around so long. He just has so much accumulated knowledge that it's great that he can share that with all of us. Yeah. And the last book is by Laura Allen, Waterwise Home. And I was so stoked when she came out with this book a few years ago. Like Brad's and Art's books are really deep and good, but you have to really go in there to find some of the basic 
information you want. Like if you want to know how to actually install a rainwater tank or install the plumbing fixtures for a gray water system, Laura Allen's book is great for all the little minutiae, like how do you wrap pipe threads and all of this kind of stuff. And if I was starting out again in 2008, when I was kind of like, oh, where do I learn all this information? This is the one book I wish I had. Perfect. And I just want to do a shout out. Brad was on our podcast, episode 110. He also has a couple of articles written on our website back from 2015. So if you go to urbanfarm.org and top right and do a search for Brad Lancaster, those articles come up along with his podcast. So if you're interested, you can dig deeper there as well. I always love listening to Brad. He's got the greatest personality and charisma. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? You know, don't get caught up in the let me buy something green and get yourself a 55-gallon barrel or a thingy to make yourself feel better about water harvesting. Like the basic rule of thumb is off of a thousand square foot roof, 600 gallons is coming off every time it rains an inch. That's huge. Yeah. 600 gallons off of a very small roof. There's no reason to put in a 55 gallon drum. Really start to think about how much water do I need and how much water do I have available and start to think about those things. I mean, call somebody to get more help with that if you want, but don't stop at, well, I, I did this much and it's something. If you're going to spend, you know, 75 bucks on a rain barrel, uh -huh. I'd rather you went and dug a basin in your yard and spent like 10 bucks redirecting your downspout and then put some more plants in. That's going to be a much more effective use of your money to get the water going into the landscape and watering something productive. That barrel is going to be a maintenance issue. The water's not going to last long and it's going to be a mess when it fills up. On one hand, that's that. And with gray water, just if you really start to understand how your plumbing is and how much water you're using, sometimes you'll figure out, wow, I'm using a lot more water than I thought. Maybe I should put in a water efficient shower head or something like that. It's like those kinds of small changes can make all the difference. Maybe I don't need to do 10 loads of laundry. Maybe I could do eight. I mean, every little bit helps. And when you realize how much water you're actually thinking about putting out into your garden, it helps you relate to how much you're using. And maybe you just need to use less. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Brooke. Thank you, Greg. You bet. So how can our listeners find you? Well, I'm online at www.h. 20-me.com. We also have a website, catchingh2o.com. You can find our email addresses and phone numbers there, but my phone number is 619-964-4838. That's your business line? Yep. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org, Smart Water Savings. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. I have said it many times, I am a lifelong learner, and I'm excited to let you know about a unique global online event made just for those of us who want to grow our own food. In this four-day online learning opportunity, a collection of visionary growers, gardeners, permaculturists, and homesteaders share garden hacks, slow tools, gadgets, and gardening technologies. Join tens of thousands of budding growers and learn how to save time, energy, and money while doing what you love most, growing your own food and medicine. 
Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash garden hacks to register for this free online summit. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.